So in Acts chapter 15, uh, we arrive at Paul and Barnabas. Um, they've ar- arrived back after their first missionary journey. They've gone and they've proclaimed the gospel. They've faced adversity. They've faced danger. Yet they continued and proclaimed the gospel. And many, many people came to faith. And they, they've now uh, returned. They've they've come back to to uh, Antioch, and uh, they have back now with their brothers and sisters, telling them the things, all the things that have been done. And what we find in chapter fifteen, we find um, a group of people, uh, well, two groups of people, trying to add to salvation. They're trying to. Um, say, yep, we are saved by Christ plus other things. And this leads Paul and Barnabas to um, discuss these things, to debate these things, and then call on a meeting in in Jerusalem where they meet with other apostles and elders. And this is an historic meeting. It's a a very, very important meeting that that occurs. They're debating, they're discussing salvation. They're discussing what it means to be saved. They're needing an answer against some of the heresy that is uh, trying to get into the church, that is trying to make believers stumble. And when we hear the thought of a meeting, um, the day we live in now, I think there is plenty of places where there is death by meeting. Um, I've worked in various places where we've even had a meeting to discuss what we should do at the next meeting. And it can bring in our minds a, a horrible thing, but what we have here is something of great importance. And it's the Council of Jerusalem. It is a gathering of believers to discuss the things of God, to discuss salvation and what it means to be saved and to what is to be said to rebuke the false teaching that is trying to come into the church. And it's in these moments where a church is found either to be a true church or to be a false church. When false teaching comes in, will the church remain and stand and proclaim the truth? Will the church defend the gospel or will they give way to false teaching? Again, if a church does stand firm against heresy, against false teaching, again, it's only by the grace of God if one gives way, it is because they have not relied on the word of God, on God himself, to form their thoughts, to form their, their doctrine of what it means to be a true church. Now the attack here we see started very early on in the life of the New Testament church. It's dealt with and unfortunately it continues to be an issue today. There is still a fight, there is still a debate, there is still a battle to be fought on the doctrine of salvation. But here we have um, the start of this, we have the defence of it, and we have the discussion of about what it means to be saved. To be saved. And again, what we see here also is, in the life of a church, there is little rest. There will be issues, there will be attacks, and here it comes in in two places where people are trying to bring in 
a false gospel. So whilst Paul and Barnabas faced many attacks, physical attacks on their journey, it all stemmed from a spiritual nature. Satan was at work trying to stop the spread of the gospel. And here Satan is trying to stop the work of the church and do away with the doctrine of salvation. You see, when they returned here, the church had rejoiced. The church was listening to all the things that they had done, that that God had done through Paul and Barnabas. The church was being built up. And again, Satan would not let this rest. He came and he attacked. He went from the physical attack to a theological one. If he threatens um, believers through um, aggression, through the possibility of death, and that does not work, then he, he comes here and tries to bring in a lie, bring in false teaching. And it's a very sneaky way, because if you attack the view of salvation, if you attack the doctrine of Christ, and you twist and turn it into a lie, then those that believe in that false teaching about Christ, then their salvation is not true. We see... Christ defamed in different ways. We see many faiths, not untrue faiths, false faiths that claim uh, a different Christ, that he's merely either just a man or he's Michael the Archangel. There are different views that people have taken on Christ. And if we get Christ wrong, we have salvation wrong. So let's just now have a look at the first six verses. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come, <clears throat> when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. And they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together for to consider of this matter. So here we see that men have come down from Judea and they were teaching a false doctrine. They were teaching a false way of salvation. They were saying you were saved by Christ and circumcision. We see it here, don't we? The, the exact words were, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So circumcision saves. They're trying to go back to the law of Moses. They're trying to bring back circumcision. And we know that circumcision was to separate God's people. It was a marking out of the people of God. We see we see this in Leviticus 12. If people had faith in the one true God, they were circumcised. They were set apart. It was, a, it was an indication. But now we know that the circumcision comes of the heart when somebody believes in Christ. So those that had come down, they were wanting to add to salvation. They were trying to teach the brethren that we are not saved just in Christ, but also 
works. You need Jesus plus. Now we know when we um, read the scriptures that we were only saved by Christ, by the, the death of Jesus. We know that faith in him, that he took the, um, the punishment that we deserved. He bore our sins. So this here is quite an obvious thing to us, isn't it? It's, we, we understand that it's only by Christ are we saved. But it was still to be debated, because remember, this is an early church. There were things coming in that was trying to pull the brothers and sisters away from the gospel. So immediately, Paul and Barnabas step up. They step up to defend the gospel. And I love the phrase here, where it says, there was no small dissension. Paul and Barnabas here argue. They fight for the faith. They are willing to stand up and to be forward in their defence of the gospel. They didn't sit back and quietly discuss. They were on their feet. They went to defend the faith. Now this, to a certain extent, has been lost in this day and age. We have lost that fight, that desire to defend the faith. And the witness to that is the false doctrine that comes into the church. When we see people walk away from the faith, take on another gospel, when law is added to saving faith. But Paul and Barnabas weren't having any of this. They were willing to be divisive. They were willing to stand up and say, no, that is a false gospel. And this is the the way that the Christian, the believer, should fight to this day. We should stand firm on the things of God. We should fight for justice. We should fight for the right things in Christ. We should fight against the things that come into this world that seek to distract, to draw people away from Christ or to try and silence the gospel. We should not be afraid to cause small dissension, no small dissension, if we are standing truthfully for the faith. But again, for Paul and Barnabas, this did not come from a heart of anger, of hatred or anything like that. It came from a place of a love for Christ and wanting to declare the faith. And we see this, we see a compromise in the world, don't we? We see a compromise in the church when we are silent on the things of Christ. When instead of proclaiming Christ and and him crucified, we give way to the world. We see the gospel cut out. We see people not declaring Christ when there is an opportunity to. We ourselves can be afraid to share that gospel, the true gospel, with our our friends and neighbours for fear. But Paul and Barnabas here are fearless. They go and walk in the ways of Christ, proclaiming the truth there. Now, to proclaim the gospel, as, as we see here, when there was no small dissension, it wasn't, probably wasn't pleasant for the hearers. We, when you just have a brief look through Acts, when the gospel was shared, it was piercing, it offended, because it declares us oh, sinful and in the need of a saviour. It says, if you're of the world and not of Christ, there will be condemnation, there will be punishment. But the gospel brings the joy of Christ and his salvation. And this is why we should defend it. Because it brings people to Christ and leads people to praise him and give him the glory 
he deserves. So Paul and Barnabas here argued, defended, fought for the gospel. They stood for the things of God. And it got to a point where it was decided that they should go to Jerusalem to consult the apostles and the elders about this question. And this is a really good thing that we cannot just skim over. The need for brothers and sisters in Christ to come together to discuss the things of God. Again, this can be lost today. We tend to go off on our own and, and keep our, our thoughts to ourselves when actually, when a, when a big matter, when a big thing arises that affects the church, we should be willing to come to discuss it and to search the mind of Christ. And this is what Paul and Barnabas sought to do. And in verse 3, we see that they went on their way. And I'll just mention this briefly, because it's, it's not really um, a, a part of, of the, the sermon today. But in verse 3, we see something really, really lovely. As they went on their way, they went to other churches. They passed through various places and encouraged the believers there. They went and told them about what the Lord had done. They declared what the Lord had done to the, the Gentiles, that he was bringing them to faith. So even though there was uh, an issue to be dealt with, they never forgot about building up and edifying the church and speaking the wonderful things that God had done. We then arrive um, at Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas arrive and they um, get there and the church receives them and they speak of all the things that God had done. But again, what happens? There rose up certain sect of the Pharisees which believed. And again, they were saying, look, there's a needfulness, there's a necessity for circumcision and to keep the law of Moses. And there is a great comparison here between verse 4 and 5 that we, we cannot miss. In verse 4, what do Paul and Barnabas do? They declared all the things that God had done with them. They were declaring the things that God had done. Now, if we were to just have a quick look through at what Paul and Barnabas had done, what the Lord had done through them, they travelled many miles by boat, on foot, they proclaimed the gospel, they'd um, seen loads of people come to faith, both Jew and Gentile, they'd been persecuted, they'd been imprisoned, Paul had, uh, had been um, stoned so badly that the people who, who were seeking to kill him thought he was dead. He arose and carried on the gospel work. So it could almost, well, it could almost be forgiven if, if Paul became big, big headed for a minute. If he was like, look what we've done, look what, what we did. We went and preached the gospel, people were saved, but what did he do? He honored God. He brought it back to God and said, look, this is what the Lord has done because everything that Paul and Barnabas achieved was because the Lord was with them. He said, look what God has done. Now let's compare that to verse 5, what the sect of the Pharisees said. They said, there is a needfulness for, to circumcise and to, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here we have Jesus plus. Paul and Barnabas, look what God has done. The, um, those that had come to faith from the sect of the Pharisees were saying, look, what God has done and what we have done. Now, there's almost been a, an addition there. The first group that had come and said, look, circumcision, 
for salvation. There's an, an additional here to circumcision and the law of Moses. So it's Jesus plus plus. And this is what legal, legalism does. You can start with the small bit of legalism, but then it'll build and it'll build and it'll build. So what they were saying here is Jesus saves plus all the ceremonial laws, all the things that were, were written um, in the Old Testament. So there's a huge difference here. It's saying, look what God has done, Paul and Barnabas. And the others are saying, look what we must do to be saved. And I find it interesting that the Pharisees here were, were classed, uh, the ones from the sect of the Pharisees were classed as believers. So they had trusted in Christ, but they were still slipping, they were sliding, they were still clinging on to the things of Judaism. They were still carrying that heavy, heavy baggage. They were babes in Christ and they were struggling to shake off the old covenant. It was difficult for them. They were still in that mindset of do, do, do. Where Paul and Barnabas were saying the very opposite. They were saying what Christ has done. It's nothing of what we have done. It's all of Christ. Now we may be here thinking, well, what has this got to do with us? And maybe this... Uh, do we, we don't need to be circumcised. We know we don't have to keep the, the law of Moses. There's nothing that we, we understand this. But what this is actually showing, what this is revealing here, is a deeper issue. It's getting at the heart of what salvation is. And do we add, well, attempt to add in our own ways? What this is dealing with is Christ alone, solus Christus. It's the understanding that only Christ saves. Well, my, well, us here may not fall for this, and if somebody said, oh, this is, we must keep the law of Moses, we must be circumcised, we will say, well, no, no, this is not true, when we understand that. But are the, are the things that we introduce ourselves in our own minds, in our own actions, where we try to bring about Jesus plus something, that means that we are saved? Is it back door works? It might not be obvious, it might be something that comes in the back door. And what happens, we tend to do this where we turn blessings into legalism. Things that we are honoured to do, we turn into a works of salvation. It can be, it is is a subtle thing. For example, should we attend church? Yes, we should. The Lord commands us to come and to be under the preaching of his word. But if we turn that into, if we don't attend, then we are not saved. We don't come to church on a Sunday in honour of the Lord wanting to be built up, wanting to, to worship and love the one who has saved us. We turn it into works righteousness. We turn a spiritual ben- benefit into a burden upon us. Yes, we should come. Yes, we should desire to be at church. Yes, it may be a sign that we are sliding or or slipping if we are not attending, if we are not desiring to come. But attendance does not serve, does not save. It's Christ who saves and we come because he has commanded us and we want to attend because we love the one who has saved us. Again, we turn a demand into a burden. We know that when someone is saved, there will be fruits. There will be the fruit of the Spirit. We will see a certain behaviour is a certain growth in people. But what we can do is we can demand from babes in Christ a maturity that the Lord has not blessed them 
with yet. We can say you should be doing this. If you're not, then you are not saved. Again, that is backdoor works. What we should be doing is saying, if there is a behaviour that needs correcting, we will go in love and honour, not trying to burden them with a work where they feel they have to do something in order to be saved. But it is an honour to live a life in honour for Christ. We can look only at the surface and miss the heart of the issue, which is salvation is only in Christ. Yes, we should be living a holy life, but we still fall short. It's only by submission to Christ that we grow. It's only by the Lord working in us that we grow in our faith. But that is not what saves us. It is Christ alone that saves us. We now come to verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He then goes on to say, And God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them in the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now Peter here has stood up. He's disputing again amongst the believers. And he makes it absolutely crystal clear what the gospel is. He also shows the dangers of legalism, of uh, of demands put on people for salvation in their own strength. He points clearly to the dangers of that. So in verse 7 he says, look, God has chosen the Gentiles. Look, they heard by God used me to preach the gospel and they heard and they believed. It shows here election. God here is saying, look, Revealing to us here that God has a salvation plan. If anybody is saved, again, it's not about their own works. It's because they are the elect of God. Not because of anything that they have done, but because of God's good grace and mercy to those who believed. And they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Like at Pentecost, Peter is saying, look, remember Pentecost, what happened there? The Holy Spirit came and it was evidence that God was with them. It is the same for the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was with them. This we see um, if we were to go through Acts 10. Peter is saying, look, it is clear that the Gentiles are the same. They are of the faith. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile. Again, why is this? Is it because one, they're both keeping the law? No, it's because their heart has been purified. We see this in verse 9. There's no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. The hearts of the Gentiles have been cleansed. Their sin has been washed away. We know that man's heart is deceitful and this is what Christ deals with. This is what legalism cannot deal with. Legalism cannot turn a heart from one of stone to one of flesh. It cannot make a deceitful heart, one that hates God, into one that loves God. Legalism condemns the gospel brings to life. And this is what Peter is saying here. He's saying their hearts were purified by Christ. So here we have both Jew and Gentile, both male and female coming to Christ. Every nation 
is now receiving the gospel, hearing the gospel. And those that God has elect is coming to faith. We see faith is a gift from God. So Peter is building this picture up now. And then he moves on and he says, Now therefore, why tempt ye God? What he's saying here is, look, you're not messing with the doctrine of man. Uh, uh, what man has made you messing with the doctrine that God has ordained, the, the true doctrine, the, the, you're messing with the things that God has put in place. And this, to those, to the Jewish, um, the Jews who've, who've come to faith in Christ, this will pierce their heart. Because when they, what the Jews did, they re- realised the, enorm- the, the enormity of God, the goodness of God, the, the glory of God. And when they realised that actually they're not dealing with the doctrine that's made up by man, but the true doctrine uh, of faith alone in Christ, which is given to us by God. They're dealing with God here, and this is a big deal. They will understand there that they're messing with a good and holy God. And then he goes on to say, Peter then says, that you've put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. So what is going on here is, Peter is using imagery now. He's saying, look, you're putting a yoke upon these people that not even us or our fathers could deal with. Now the yoke is, is a wooden cross that goes, uh, that is fitted to, to animals that will plough, uh, pull a cart to plough or, or to pull people along. And he said here that this heavy yoke was, was placed upon on us, on our fathers, and they could not bear it because it demanded perfection. The law of Moses demanded perfection. And neither the Pharisees here nor their fathers beforehand could bear that yoke. None of them could live the righteous life to earn salvation because the law demands perfection. No one can bear it. The law says to be saved, you must do this, this and this and do it perfectly. We can't, none of us have. And it brings us to despair. And Peter is saying this, look, it brought us to despair. It brought our fathers to to despair. Why would you place it on the Gentile believers? And it's a wonderful thing to be reminded of because it really points us again to Christ. Only Christ could bear that burden. Only Christ could keep the law perfectly. Only Christ could, only Christ walked in a manner worthy of filling every aspect of the law. He completed where we failed. And this is why he was the perfect sacrifice. That is why Christ is our saviour. And then Peter moves on and he says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Peter makes it abundantly clear that salvation is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. We don't choose God. God chooses us. We are not saved by our own works. We are only saved by the works of Christ if we have faith in him. We are dead in trespasses, but are made alive in Christ. We are spiritually dead, but brought to spiritual life 
by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a good reminder, again, for us all here, not to slip into thinking we must do in order to be saved or to keep our salvation. For we are saved in Christ, that is confirmed, that is sealed. And he has brought us into his family, adopted into his family, through only the works of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the gospel, when we look at the life and the death of Christ, we see that he was the one who was bruised for our, our iniquities. It says, by his stripes we are healed. And this is all what we read when we say, when we, we say what Peter said here, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And it is a big deal to say that we are saved by Christ plus something else. Because what we are actually saying is what Jesus did was not enough. And Peter here makes that abundantly clear. So for us, when we see the commands to love our God and love our neighbour, we seek to do them, not for salvation, but because we love the one who saved us. We do it for the glory of God. We do it so we can point to Christ and say he is the one who has saved us. We are not carrying a yoke that is too heavy for us because Christ has carried that for us. He says his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And it is light and it is easy because it is, the Christ, it is Christ who carries us. And to put this crystal clear, to really finish here now from what Peter has said, that faith comes only in Christ. I just want to read something from our Confession of Faith. It's in chapter 7, and it says, Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. That is the best summary that shows us, really, better than anything I can say, that faith is only found in our wonderful Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.